Hey everyone, and welcome to the Her Head in Films podcast. I'm your host, my name is Caitlin. In this podcast, I share my personal thoughts and feelings about cinema. Usually it's art house and world cinema. If you are new to the podcast and you've never listened before, and you don't know who I am, as I said, my name is Caitlin. I am a writer, a blogger, um, I like to call myself a dreamer. Um, I love literature, I love art, I love poetry, and over the last few years I've really developed a love of cinema, and of art house and world cinema in particular. I live in a rural area in the south, here in the United States, as you can probably tell from my accent, and um, I don't live in a place where there's a cinephile culture or there is like an art house theater. I don't have anybody to talk to about films or literature or anything like that. So this podcast was created to fill that void and to give me an outlet to share my love of cinema and my thoughts and feelings about it. This podcast is very personal. It's very raw. I really try to weave together the films that I watch with my life and my own personal experiences. doesn't mean I don't talk about larger issues, but... First and foremost, I like to ground the podcast in the personal and the subjective. And so, that's just how I am. Today's episode is going to be about Abbas Kurastami's Coker Trilogy, which consists of three films. The first is Where Is My Friend's House, which was made in 1987. And then the second one is Life and nothing more and the third is through the olive trees made in 1994 life and nothing more was made in 1992 um just a heads up there will be spoilers in this review i will talk about plot points of the films and so if you do not want these films spoiled for you i just want to let you know about that As some of you may know, at the beginning of the podcast, before I get into the film, sometimes I just like to talk about more general, more personal things. And what I wanted to talk about today was maybe a couple of things. I've been really depressed lately. If you listen to the other episodes, I've been on a Kurostami kick and I've been watching him all week. Um, his birthday was recent, like June 22nd, he was, was his birthday, and then July 4th will be the day that he died. He died July 4th, 2016. So, I've just been really revisiting his work, um, watching new films. The Coker Trilogy was completely new to me, whereas Taste of Cherry, which uh, I have an episode about that, uh, that was one that I rewatched. But all the films of the Coker Trilogy are totally new to me, and I watched them this week. And it was a really great experience, and I can't wait to talk about those films. So this week, I've been really depressed. I've been really struggling, because I've had anxiety and depression since childhood. And it's something that I probably will always deal with. And um, I feel very separated from the world. I feel very like alone and and I just struggle a lot with it you know I'm very open about it because I think we should be open I don't think there should be a stigma attached to it but there is um 
And so it's very interesting what I've been doing this week to sort of cope with the depression is that I've been watching the Coker trilogy and I've been reading a bit. I haven't been reading as much as usual. So this week is sort of an example of how for me film is like life-saving and film is just really essential to my like survival as like a human being <laughs> and um it didn't used to be that way actually and this is something else I wanted to talk about the my interest in cinema in art house cinema especially is sort of recent really um much of my life I've built this image of myself in my mind as a writer, as someone who really loves literature. And that's still true. I, I still read literature and I, I love it. And I love to read books in translation. I love classics. I love Virginia Woolf, Sylvia Plath, um, Catherine Mansfield, Clarice Lispector is some of my favorite writers. Um, but lately, the last few years, film has just exploded for me in terms of my obsession with it. And it, as the years go by, I find more and more that I watch a whole lot more films than I read books. Like I might read, you know, 50 to 100 books a year, but I have watched hundreds and hundreds of films. I mean, I think last year, I, I don't know, I might have watched like, 300 films or maybe two to 300 I don't know I'm already surpassing a hundred at this point and it's like halfway through 2016 I mean 2017 but it's just I was thinking about how I really created this sense of myself that was really connected to writing and it was really connected to literature and how in the last few years and especially this year I feel like maybe that's taken a back seat. Like, I have a book podcast, and I haven't done an episode in, like, months <laughs> at this point. I have focused so much on the film podcast, because I guess cinema has just, it's become so front and center for me. As some of you might know, I, my art house cinema really started, my obsession with it started in, like, 2011. I watched Chris Marker's La Jetée. And then I saw Krzysztof Kieślowski's The Double Life of Veronique. And I saw Michelangelo Antonioni's La Ventura. And those were really important films for me in developing my real my passion for art house cinema. And then just this year I discovered Sachajit Ray and Potter Panchali and the Apu trilogy, which I really fell in love with. So what's really happened the last few years is that I feel like I've discovered like this whole other part of my identity or this this part of me has just recently emerged and I'm really trying to reorient myself around it because it's just become such a central part of my life and I'm not sure what to make of it like I went to college I graduated in 2014 I went to a university and I majored in literature. I majored in English. I never even thought of majoring in film or doing anything with film. And I was all about literature and books and I was just always about the written word. And so it's just so strange to me in a way 
that I've discovered this passion because film is very visual and I wonder sometimes if it coincides if it, I don't think it's any I don't know if it's a coincidence that it coincided with me becoming more interested in the internet because I'm 27 and much of my life I didn't have a computer I didn't have a computer until probably 2010 when I was about 21 years old. That was probably the first time I had my own laptop and I had consistent access to the internet where I could go on Tumblr and I could go on different websites and I could, up until that point I hadn't had that. I was not engaged with the internet in any way except for school, you know, except for doing projects or writing papers or doing research. And I feel like it made me much more visual because the internet is so visual. Although I do a lot of reading online. I certainly read a lot of essays and articles. But you know, there's Pinterest and Twitter and Instagram and it's it's very it's a visual environment, I think. And I just wonder if that could be part of the trigger of why I became so interested in film. When I was in high school, I took a film appreciation class, and that awakened me to the concept that film could be art, you know, that it wasn't just entertainment. But it, it really wasn't until I got on online, got on the internet, met other cinephiles, got some recommendations from people, and got really interested in cinema. So... I mean, I had watched foreign films up to that point. I had seen, like, The Lives of Others. I had seen Pan's Labyrinth, La Vie en Rose. I was definitely interested in foreign films and world cinema and art house cinema. But it just, it wasn't like this consuming thing until 2011, I would say. And then I think it's ramped up even more recently. And... As I said, it's just, it's a personal thing. It's it like, you know, when I was watching the Apu trilogy, I was deeply moved by that. And, um, and I have an episode about it where I, like, cry. <laughs> um, when I say this podcast is personal and raw, I mean it's personal and raw. I mean, I am afraid to go there in a way. It's very scary to be so vulnerable. But at the same time, I think that if I'm really going to connect with other people, then I do have to open myself up in some way. And I have to be honest about how I feel about these films and the effect that they have on me. And I always want to be honest about that. I really do. Well, that's, that's me just rambling. But I guess I'm just working through this of like, I consider myself a writer. I, I consider myself very connected to language to writing. This is something that's a huge part of me. Since I was maybe 10 or 11 years old, I've written in a journal. I've, I've written a lot. I write online. Not as much as I used to. Um, but now there's just been this whole shift in my identity where I'm like, God, you know, I kind of wish when I was in college, maybe I'd done something with film or, I mean, not that that would even be possible for me. Like, I live in a rural area. Like, there's nothing to do with there's nothing to do with English here or literature my my degree is basically useless unless I was to become a teacher which is not going to happen because I have a lot of anxiety issues but it's just 
it's just so strange to have this idea of yourself for so long that oh you're the writer you're the literature girl you love books you're a bookworm and then all of a sudden there's this other part of you that you had never explored you had never been aware of really and then all of a sudden this other part of you emerges and it starts to get stronger and stronger and more overpowering and I don't know I feel a bit destabilized by it because I don't know what to do with it you know like I can't start an art house theater I can't make films I'm not a director you know I <laughs> what am I gonna do with this like it's it's there it's this passion but I don't know what to do with it so I guess it's part of why I started the podcast because I felt like well what am I going to do with this? Why don't I talk about it? Why don't I talk about film? So that's where it came from, I think, partly. But let's get to the Coker trilogy. It's named Coker because that's where these three films take place, is, um, is Coker, which is a village in northern Iran. So the first film is called where is my friend's house? I'm going with where is my friend's house. It has several titles, but that's what the Criterion Collection goes by. And that's what I watched. That's the version of the film that I watched. Just looking at something. So this was made in 1987 by Iranian director Abbas Kiristami. It's set in Kokar, a, a village in northern Iran. And I talk about this film in another episode where I talk about it in relation to a film that Kiristami wrote and that was released in 2000, though it was directed by somebody else, Muhammad Ali Talebi. And it's also about sort of similar themes, and it's about a child, and, and so I also have that episode. But I wanted to talk about this trilogy. So it was released in 1987. It's about an eight-year-old boy named Ahmed, who one day accidentally takes home the notebook of his friend Muhammad. If Muhammad does not have his notebook and doesn't do his homework in the notebook, the next day, if he doesn't have that notebook with him the next day, the teacher's going to expel him from school. So, Ahmed realizes that he has the notebook. He's already at home. He doesn't know where Muhammad lives. He has an idea of, like, the village that he lives in. And it's not Coker, it's another village. And so he goes on this quest to find Muhammad's house to give him and to return the notebook to him. In the end, he's not able to find Muhammad's house, but he does Muhammad's homework for him in the notebook and shows up the next day and gives it to him. The teacher checks the homework and everything's fine. Disaster is averted. It's this really lovely touching film about 
childhood and friendship and sacrifice and sat in responsibility. Ahmed is a very moral child, I think. And as I said, I talk m much more about this film in the, in the other episode. I go much deeper into it in that he has a very strong sense of what's right and what's wrong and that Muhammad, his friend, should not be punished for the mistake that he took both notebooks and that he took Muhammad's notebook accidentally. And he wants to right that wrong and he doesn't think that Muhammad should be punished. Whereas when he tells like his mother about the notebook, she just kind of shrugs it off and just thinks, well, Muhammad's just going to have to deal with it. The adults around him don't seem to to think that it's important, but he does. And he goes on this quest to find Muhammad, and he's not able to. And in the end, he does what he thinks is right. And he, and he stays up late at night to do all this homework, and he makes the sacrifice of his time and his energy for his friend. And so it's this very moving portrait of friendship as well. And so I really liked that sort of a sense of selflessness and and um and I think that Kurostami has this ability to really portray children in a very authentic way and some of the hallmarks of his cinema is that he likes to use amateur actors um he doesn't necessarily always use trained actors and the little boy that played Ahmed um was untrained he was an amateur actor he was just a young boy that they found an eight-year-old boy that they found to play the part but he's so dynamic on screen i think and he has these cute little freckles and he's just the most adorable child i thought and but also very serious he has like this very serious sort of adult way about him i think and something else the film shows is that these children in, in rural Iran and rural villages, and I like that too, that it's set in a rural area because I myself come from that kind of environment here in the U.S. And I think it's sort of an underrepresented thing in cinema, um, looking at rural villages and, and light, ways of life in the countryside. And that was something that I really liked about it. Oh, God, I lost my train of thought. Oh, Jesus. I hate when that happens. I'm looking at my notes to see if I can get it back. but yeah I can't but like I said it's just it's about life in this world oh I do know I do know what I was gonna say thank, thank you um you see how the children are sort of uh conflicted they want to go to school they want to learn but then they have these responsibilities and obligations to their families to help their families economically or to help with their labor. One child has to work on a farm 
and uh, Ahmed has to help his mom with his baby sibling, and so they're torn. You know, they want their education, and they want their schooling, but at the same time, they have to help with the adults in their life. They have to do chores, and they're very conflicted about that, I think, and you can sort of feel the pressure that's on them. So that was the first film in the trilogy, and I will say also that Kiristami himself didn't consider this a trilogy. This was more of an artificial grouping by film scholars and, and film watchers. Um, if you go on Wikipedia, you'll see it. Like He sort of argues that perhaps the last two films of the trilogy, plus Taste of Cherry, could be their own trilogy. He doesn't necessarily see them this way, but film scholars have grouped them as a trilogy called the Coker Trilogy. So the second film in the trilogy is called Life and Nothing More. It's also sometimes called And Life Goes On, and it was made in 1992. Um, and... This is almost like, this is where Kiristami, I think, in the trilogy really starts to meld fiction and reality, which he's really known for, is blurring those lines between what's real and what's not, what's staged, what's artificial, and what's documentary. He did this in close-up as well. So, like, a, his, some of his films will seem like documentaries, but they're not because parts of them are staged or acted. Um, so you're never quite sure, well, what are you watching that's real and, and a documentary? And what are you watching that's filmed and staged? You don't always know when you're watching a Kiristami film. He likes to just completely obliterate, I think, those divisions um, among genres. But this film... It, what happened is that at northern Iran, in the area where Coker, the Coker village was located, in 1990, three years after Where Is My Friend's House, there was a devastating earthquake that happened in that region. And estimates um, of the loss of life say that perhaps up to 50,000 people were killed. And that number is just horrific, honestly. So, in the film, a man plays the director of Where Is My Friend's House. So I guess you could say this is a man playing Kiristami, who goes back to Coker, or attempts to go back to the Coker village, in northern Iran, devastated by this earthquake, to look for two of the boys that were in Where Is My Friend's House. So he's looking for the little boy that played Ahmed, and he's looking for the little boy that played Muhammad. He wants to know if they have survived. He is accompanied on his trip by his own son, who is with him. So this is a sort of a docufiction. You have Kiristami directing a film that's about Kiristami, looking for the children from his previous film. <laughs> Even as I say it, it sounds sort of convoluted, but it's not. It's this weaving of fiction and reality. And 
they're looking for um, for those two boys. And you, what's shocking, I think, about this film is the footage of the region and how there is immense devastation. Um, people's homes are completely obliterated. There's rubble everywhere. There's rubble blocking the roads. So the roads can be a bit treacherous. Um, but a lot of the film is from, is basically of the director character in his car driving around, talking to various people, hearing about their experiences of the earthquake, how many of them have lost family members, they've lost children, and yet they are just going about their lives. They're just doing what they have to do to survive. And I think that's probably where the And Life Goes On title comes from. And that's probably a much more fitting title than Life and Nothing More. But they, they're both there. So I guess you can use them interchangeably. There's a scene where the director meets a young man who says that he got married just one day after the earthquake. And that sort of, I think, is another reminder that life does go on life continues even after the earthquake this man and this young woman decided to get married but as i said it's just harrowing to see the iranian landscape and to see demolished houses and um but you also see a great deal of community and solidarity and support people coming together to clean up the rubble um it was interesting because I don't live in an earthquake area. Um, I live in the south, but I do live in a region that is tornado prone. And I have not lived through a tornado myself, but it is sort of a fact of life here that there, there's a tornado season, there's sirens, there's you should be prepared, you know, and just a few, maybe like a week ago, we got some really bad weather and we were under a tornado watch and there was an area several counties away that got a tornado and it was probably like a EF1 or an EF2 and we saw it on the news and you just saw all this rubble. You saw like, you know, businesses or, or buildings just reduced to like nothing to just these bricks and it showed like one woman's car had like this um, slab of wood like right through the center of it like a stake it was and she was in the car when it happened okay, thankfully nobody died but this region has had its share of really intense bad bad tornadoes that have been really destructive and deadly I didn't grow up in this area so this is all very new to me I grew up in another part of the south and recently moved here where where I grew up, there was not tornadoes. It was not a normal part of life, whereas here it is. And so the tornadoes in this region are a bit like the earthquakes in Iran, I would think. They're very random, they're very unpredictable, and you have to live with the possibility of them happening. Of course, the death toll is nothing like what, you know, the 50,000, of course, but... Um, but it's just this fact of life that people live with, and yet it's such a terrifying thing 
but what can you do? I mean, if this is where you live, then it's where you live. Not everybody has the means or the money to move or to do anything about it. Um, so the director does find one of the boys from the film, not Ahmed or Muhammad, um, but just one of the little boys who had been in the class and, um, they're living in like this camp and, uh, you see the boy's sisters are like washing something in a stream or maybe doing dishes or something. And it's very difficult for them to talk about the earthquake. They're not really able to talk about it. Um, I thought a really moving part of the film was when like the people have found like this antenna so that they can either watch the world cup or listen to it on the radio and this watching a football is something that's really important to them. The World Cup is going on. And um, once again, it's it's this reminder that life goes on. I mean, yes, people have lost their loved ones. They've lost children. They've lost spouses. But they're still able to watch a game of soccer. I mean, we call it soccer here. But I know it's called football everywhere else. And... um it's so interesting about football around the world. It's it's something that almost every nation except the United States is just really, really into. And we just do not have that fervor for it at all. Um, but it's really amazing to see how the game sort of brings people together. Um, and I imagine this is like a moment of joy for them in in sort of this hellscape that they're living in with the rubble and, and this makeshift camp and the man leaves his son at the camp for them to watch the soccer match and he continues his journey to Coker he's not even at Coker yet this is like a whole like a different village um and so we see the man um trying to get to Coker And at one point, his car, he tries to get, he tries to go up a hill or, or something like that. And his car just slides back down. His his car seems really old and really sort of falling apart. And then you think that he's just going to give up, you know. But he is not going to give up. And he tries again and he gets up that hill. And so there is this sense that his journey will continue, his search for the actor that played Ahmed and the actor that played Muhammad, he will continue to search for them. And you don't know. I mean, at that point, you don't know what's happened to them. Um, so overall, it's just, it's a film really about the resilience of people, their people's ability to continue living in the aftermath of just catastrophic damage and loss. I mean, I hate these cliches about the resilience of the human spirit, you know, but it is really amazing to see the people still going about their lives and, and able to get through it. You know, um, I don't know if I would be that strong at all. I, I don't think I would, but I think perhaps maybe their faith is part of it as well. A lot of them, allude to their the Muslim faith and that you know it was sort of it was in God's hands in a way 
And so I think in in the context of something like that, I think religion can be a comfort for a lot of people. I mean, I'm an atheist. I don't believe in any religion. But you can tell that I think their faith is what helps them survive it. That they think, well, you know, it happened. It must have happened for some reason. You know, if you believe in God, then you have to believe. Well, why would he let this happen? I didn't come across any kind of anger on the part of anyone in the region. Um, they seem to accept it. That this is part of life. It's painful, but it happened. And there's nothing we can do about it. And, um... So they are resilient in that way. And it's... So it's really about life, death, survival. It's a life-affirming film, I think. Sort of similar, a bit like Taste of Cherry, if you've seen that film. It's just, I thought it was very interesting how it dealt with this huge event. The death of up to 50,000 people, possibly. Through this very personal, intimate story of one man's search for these two children. And to see... It's a very personal, intimate story. Um, and I thought that was very moving. I mean, it really is about the preciousness of life in that it's about the suddenness of catastrophe, the way that things can all of a sudden change and life can be taken away and the people you love can be taken away from you. Um... I mean, somehow, even despite these sorts of things, people are able to survive and they're able to go on living. They get married, like the young man that the director was talking to, or they watch a football or soccer game. They do chores, they clear away the rubble, and they rebuild. And that, to me, is what Life and Nothing More is really about. The third film in the trilogy is called Through the Olive Trees. It came out in 1994. It's also set in northern Iran. Um, I would say this one of all three of the films is formally the most experimental and I think the most challenging. And I think of all the films, it just totally, totally blurs the lines between what is real and what is not. What is imagined, what is staged, what is artificial. Um, I don't even think you could call it docufiction, really. I, I don't know, because I don't think any part of it's a documentary. But you don't know. Throughout the film, I just, I had my, I was thinking, like, what is, what is real and what is not? What is scripted? What is, I, I didn't know. I honestly didn't know. I would describe it as a sort of fictional behind the scenes or a making of for life and nothing more because it focuses on one particular scene from life and nothing more which is when the director is talking to the young man who got married one day after the earthquake so we have <laughs> this is where it gets complicated because we have one actor playing a director and he's directing 
life and nothing more. So he's directing himself. No, not himself. He's directing another man playing him, which is the man who played the director in Life and Nothing More. So you see what I'm saying? We have a film within a film. Um, so we have someone playing a director who's directing another man who's playing him in this scene with a young man from a scene from Life and Nothing More. That's how kind of complicated this film is. You've got several layers of of film here. You have a film within a film. And um and so you really have two men who are in a way representing Kurostami. Um so it's it's this very meta sort of thing. But it's really about the filming of this scene of this young man talking about how he got married a day after the earthquake. Um, and that's the main focus. And it's it's about the young man in real life. Like, the character he played in Life and Nothing More was not who he was. He is not married. He... If anything, the woman that plays his wife in the film, he knows her from the past. Before the earthquake, he had asked her to marry him, and her family had refused. The earthquake happened, her family died, only her grandmother's left. And the grandmother still refuses to let her marry him. So in real life, in the film Through the Olive Trees, they are not married. They are playing a married couple for the film Life and Nothing More. He would like to marry her, actually. But she will not talk to him. She will not speak to him. She will not acknowledge him. So we don't know how she feels about him, really. So, <laughs> so we have several layers going on here of what is real and what is not like the boy playing the married man like in real life does he really want to marry this girl or does he have a crush on this girl or is he or is he also playing a part and pretending that he has a crush on this girl that he's acting with in life and nothing you see what i mean like it's i don't even know how to explain this film you really just have to watch it. Like, I feel completely inept even trying to talk about it at this point. What is interesting and important about this film is that we see, we finally see the actors who played Ahmed and Muhammad in Where Is My Friend's House? And they're alive. They end up on the road. They're carrying flower pots for the film, Life and Nothing More. Um... And they're grown up. They're like several years older. They're like teenage boys. And they're alive. And it's just this understated moment. There's nothing dramatic about it. It's just all of a sudden they're there. And we know that they lived. And of course Kiristami's not going to make a big fuss about it, right? Um, so, like I said, this is, of all the films, this is really blurring what's real and what's not you know as i say 
it it's it's like a fictionalized behind the scenes making of of life and nothing more you in order to understand through the olive trees you've got to see life and nothing more because that's what it's about it's about that scene where the director's talking to the young man and he says he got married but then in through the olive trees it's about who these kids are when the camera's not rolling and his crush on her and his attempt to try to get her to marry him but at the same time they're still playing a part so they were acting in life and nothing more and they're also acting in through the olive trees so we don't know what is real we don't know what's documentary what's acting what's staged what's not I mean, I, I don't think I've seen a film like this before. It's dizzying to try to figure out what's fact and what's fiction. It, you're not really going to be able to do it. The two are just so thoroughly blurred, I think. And the young man, his name is Hossein, and he is just has this dogged pursuit of this girl. You know, he's very in love with her and through the olive trees um he wants to marry her he says he wants to make her happy he says that he'd like for her to continue her studies um so he's trying to romance and trying to woo her but she does not engage with it at all she is not interested she she doesn't talk to him um it made me a little uncomfortable, the constant pursuit of her, when I think she obviously was not very interested in him. But it, that could be a cultural thing, you know. I just know that in American films, it makes me really uncomfortable when men sort of doggedly pursue women who have outright said, I'm not interested in you, I don't want anything to do with you. And in American culture, we tell men that no means maybe that no means yes when sometimes well, well no means no you know when a woman says she's not interested in you that means she's not interested in you but in a lot of american films especially with like romantic comedies we romanticize the way that men pursue women the way men just obsessively pursue women even when women say please stop or I'm not interested or they ignore the man so I guess that kind of brought up feelings like that for me when I was watching it I felt like well if if this girl was interested in him wouldn't she tell him wouldn't she say something she does not speak to him the whole time but as I said that could be a cultural thing where she's taught not to speak to young men not to talk to young men she may not feel comfortable talking to him she may be very shy and not able to express her feelings. I'm I'm not sure within Iranian society what is the proper, I guess, accepted way that men and women, that that works. That there are different mores, social mores, when it comes to those, um, when it comes to romance and romantic pursuit. But um, it, it ends ambiguously she's walking home he's following her he's saying how much he loves her and wants to marry wants to marry her we don't know what she if she ever says anything or if she accepts it if she doesn't 
at one point at the end he runs he he's following her and then all of a sudden he runs back in the way that they had come and we don't know what that means and that's the way it ends so again Kiristami loves these kind of very ambiguous, open-ended conclusions to his films where you really have to decide for yourself what you think happens. I personally didn't think she was interested in him, but but I'm not sure. I'm not sure what happens. Um so overall I thought this was a I thought it was a challenging film. As I said, I have difficulty talking about it because there's so many layers to it of actors playing directors, actors playing other characters or are they playing themselves? What's real, what's not? It's hard to talk about, honestly. But I thought it was a really interesting look at life and film, how they affect one another, how they bleed into one another. And I also thought it was really Kiristami maybe looking at filmmaking itself. Because in several parts of the film we see... We see scenes from life and nothing more being filmed or being recreated. And we see the camera crew. We see how they do the set. How they put the flower pots out. How they dress the actors. And we see them do a scene maybe five, six, seven times. The repetition of it, the the saying of the same lines over and over again, and how, especially the young girl, she she won't say certain things that they want her to say. And so they'll have to do the scene over again. So I would say it's sort of a film that um, maybe, what's the word? Uh, raises the curtain behind the whole process of filmmaking where it shows you what really happens on a, on a film set um, of trying to get certain performances out of actors of of having to do a scene you know ten times maybe um, and you have to say the same thing over and over and you have to do the same movements and you have to do all these things and you have to do it the way the director wants you to do it and often Kiristami used untrained amateur actors um, and that they show that at the beginning of the film of the director at um, a school trying to pick out a young girl to play the part of the, of the girl who is the young man's wife um, and all these girls lined up and wanting to be in the film we see children who, um, from the surrounding camps, you know, I mean, the earthquake has happened, there's rubble, and they don't have much to do, and, um, or maybe they're, they're working on their homework and stuff, and they come and they watch the filming of the movie, it's something that's very interesting to them, and they, um, and they enjoy that, so, it really takes you behind the curtain and, and takes you into the movie making process and the filmmaking process and um, sort of strips away the magic, right? I mean, I don't know how I feel about that personally. I mean, I sometimes like to watch making of or behind the scenes documentaries, but at the same time, 
I don't always like to because I don't necessarily want to know everything that goes into making a film. I don't necessarily want to see that because I want to take the film as it is and I want the magic of the film and I don't necessarily want that magic to be destroyed or to be taken away. You know what I mean? So sometimes when you watch the behind the scenes or the making of documentaries, it can take away some of that magic and some of that, um, that thing about art that's like lightning in a body, well, lightning in a bottle. In a body too, like the lightning comes into your body when you're watching it. Um, it's that something that you can't name and that you can't, um, that you can't put your finger on. Like why when you watch a certain film, I would say Kishlovsky, Christoph Kishlovsky's films are like this too. Or they have this effect on you, this sense of magic, this, some, this sense of something transcendent. And of course you know that it's that it's all constructed. It's all artifice. It's it's actors, it's music, it's editing, it's it's this machine recording these things. Um <laughs> I mean you know all of that consciously that there is a person or many people behind the film making all these decisions that come together to create the film but at the same time there is this magical quality about it that you don't know how to describe or talk about and of course I think Kiristami is maybe trying to show us that this is what a film is that it's it's lies right it's artifice it's it's um it's not real it's not real. I mean, these are not real people. These are characters. These are not really people. These are actors. That, you know, and in a in an interview, Kiristami said that, you know, you use lies to say something about the truth. You put together two people who are not really married, but you're trying to say something about a married couple. Or you put a man and a child together because you're trying to say something about fathers and sons. They may not have a relationship in real life together, but you're you're trying to create something out of these lies and out of something that's staged and scripted and written. And I think maybe that's always the struggle with art is that, you know, when you read a great book or you watch a great film, you know these are not real people, unless you're watching a documentary, I guess. But even then there's editing. Even then the director or whoever is controlling the narrative. Do you know these people are not real? But they feel real. And they make you feel things that are real. And they make you think about things. And that is sort of the function of a film really. Is to make us think. To make us feel. To make us reflect maybe. You know. But in this film, out of all of the trilogy, he's really pushing us to look at this. And he does the same thing in Taste of Cherry. At the end of Taste of Cherry, we see behind-the-scenes footage of the film being made. And that's how it ends. And so he's pushing us, I think, to look at filmmaking itself and and telling us, you know, this is a lie. This is just a story that I've made up. 
Um, and I'm not sure if I'm the person to talk about it. You know, it's because I struggle to articulate it, really, what that means exactly. Um, I mean, we know films are not real. We know books are not real in terms of the characters and the people and the stories that exist. But they live in us. They They affect us, even though they may not necessarily be real. So, I thought the Coker Trilogy was a very interesting trilogy, and it was challenging at times, and it was really beautiful at times in terms of looking at how people deal with loss, um, how life continues, how life goes on, even after catastrophe, even after a natural disaster, people still get married, people still have children, people still go on. Although there is a man, I think it's in this one, yeah, and he lost his wife in the earthquake and they were married 50 years and he says that he doesn't think it would be right, you know, to remarry after losing her. So, but love continues, life continues, art continues, you know, maybe Kiristami is using these films at times to work through his own interests or, or to work through the earthquake in some way to to look at life to look at loss to look at death to look at sort of the unpredictable nature of life and how precious it is because it can be gone in a second and and everything can be lost in a second and um he makes something like this huge disaster very personal through these films, I think, and through zeroing in on these specific characters. Um, I mean, obviously, there's so much that could be said about this trilogy, and I'm sure someone with a background in Iranian cinema and Iranian culture would have a lot more to say in terms of the socio-political aspects of this trilogy and the cultural aspects of this trilogy and maybe what Kiristami is trying to say about Iranian society. I don't have that knowledge or that experience. And so I do realize that there are holes in my analysis and I, I definitely want to read more about that and, and to learn more about it. Um, but all I can do is try to give my feelings and thoughts and opinions about these films and about this trilogy. And I do hope that it conveys something or, or that it is valuable in some way. Um, I thought it was a really fascinating trilogy and I think it will definitely stay with me and that I will continue to think about these films and about what they're saying especially something like Through the Olive Trees. I mean, I think Kiristami was so innovative and so almost avant-garde in certain ways in terms of narrative and how he told a story and how he blended fact and fiction and how he never, how you're always destabilized when you're watching some of his films. Think of Certified Copy, you know, I've, I've only watched it once. I need to watch it again, but it was so challenging for me. I really struggled with that film, and so I haven't revisited it, but his his films can be that way, where you're sort of, 
there's this tension throughout this film, especially through the olive trees. What's real? What's not? How much of this is a film? How much of this is a documentary? Is any of it a documentary? You know, there's so many layers there that you have to unpeel and, and unpack. And um, so I think some of his films or some of his stories can be sort of deceptively simple. And they can seem very simple when, in fact, there is this huge, intricate architecture that goes into them. Um, and I think that was why he was a giant of world cinema and why his death and his absence is so deeply felt by a lot of, of people in cinema, in cinema culture, in film studies. and So, yeah. Definitely... Um, recommend this trilogy whereas my friend's house is on filmstruck it's on the criterion channel on filmstruck um mk2 a distribution company has all of kurosami's films now and they're actually restoring them as we speak and hopefully they'll get released or distributed and hopefully we can get we'll get to see more of his films as time goes on and more of his films will be easily readily available to the public I think we need that. I think we desperately need those films to be available. But anyways, that's all I'm going to talk about. I'm going to stop here. So, Anyways, thank you for listening. And I forgot to do my shout-outs. Oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. Um, I forgot to mention at the beginning that I have a Patreon. And you can find it at patreon.com slash herheadandfilms. Um, I do have to pay to keep this podcast going, so that's just a way for you to financially sustain the podcast if you would like to. I have different levels that you can donate at, and you get different rewards. You get access to patron-only content on the site, and I have um, an extra podcast there where I do many episodes that are about 10 to 15 minutes long. I have one level where you can vote on things that I talk about i have another level where you can recommend a film and i'll review it another level where you get a postcard so i've done my best to try to come up with good rewards for you and one reward is that you get a shout out on the podcast and i do apologize that i forgot to mention it at the beginning so i would like to thank the patrons uh jesse michelle and carolyn i really appreciate that you're supporting the podcast that you um that you see value in it so Thank you to Carolyn, Michelle, and Jesse. You're wonderful. And um, anyways, thank you everyone who listened to this episode, who listens to all the episodes. If you're a new listener, thanks. You're amazing. I hope that you'll listen to more episodes. And um, I hope that you enjoy what I have to say. So thanks for listening. Until next time, keep watching great films.